On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word. In our study of Ephesians on Sunday mornings, we are uh, at the natural dividing point in the book between the theological and, and the practical. We've completed the the first three chapters, which are theological, emphasizing who we are in Christ, our position in Christ in the heavenly places, all because of his sovereign grace. And we're preparing now to begin the the second three chapters, chapters four through six, which are practical, emphasizing how in light of God's glorious purpose for the church and our position in Christ, we should live in practical godliness. But before we get into the practical section, I wanted to take opportunity this morning and and take a little detour. I want to speak about something that's just been on my heart for some time, on the hearts of our elders as well, and that is our our service to Christ. And I think probably one of the the catalysts for doing this this morning is that when we changed the name of the church, that meant also changing uh, all everything, every piece of paper, envelope, all everything, all the documents we use. Well, we've just completed the new servant statement and agreement, which, uh, as you know, anyone who desires to serve in any capacity must complete, and which we will have everyone who currently serves uh, redo as well, but that we'll let you know about that. So consequently, this issue of, of being a servant, in particular our freedom as Christians and our service to Christ. These things have have been on my mind. And let me say at the outset that we are so very, very thankful for those who serve in this church. Uh, We have a list of those who serve, and uh, a number of people on that list serve in more uh, than one ministry. And so we're very thankful uh, for those who have servants' hearts and who serve faithfully and consistently in this church. But I want to look this morning at at our freedom as Christians and our service to Christ. And this is an issue that the Apostle Paul addressed in Galatians chapter 5. So if you'll turn, please turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 13 through 15. And actually, when we went through Galatians a number of years ago... We did a, uh, I did two messages out of these verses. We're just going to do one this morning, so obviously we're not going to cover some things as in-depth uh, as we did before. But Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 15, if you'll stand with me as I read this passage. Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, if you'll follow along now as I begin reading in verse 13. For you were called to freedom brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. 
May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. The freedom that we have in Christ, our gospel freedom, is one of the greatest blessings we have. I mean, Paul believed that, and he often spoke of this freedom. In fact, the book of Galatians is almost entirely about freedom. Paul spoke about freedom a number of times in this letter. In chapter 2, verse 4, he spoke of the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. In chapter 4, he illustrated the Christian's freedom using the analogy of the believer's spiritual descent from Abraham's wife, Sarah, the the free woman. In chapter 5, verse 1, he declared, For freedom Christ has set us free. Christ has saved us to be free and, and, and to live in that freedom. But the question is, what is this freedom that we have been saved for? Does it mean that we are free from every kind of restraint and and restriction? Does it mean we're free from all controls? Does it mean that we are now free to do whatever we want? I mean, does Christian freedom mean freedom to sin? I mean, what are the implications of this freedom that we have in Christ Jesus? Well, this is the issue the Apostle Paul addresses in our text. You see, Paul knew the two great dangers to Christian freedom are, number one, legalism. You know, seeking to earn acceptance before God by keeping the law and by works. And number two, license. By misapplying the doctrine of God's grace. Whereas legalism demands responsibility without freedom, license grants freedom without responsibility. And the Apostle Paul understood that license poses as great a threat to believers' freedom as legalism does. I mean, his message in chapter 5, verses 1 through 12 is, don't lose your gospel freedom. But his message in verses 13 to 15 is, do not abuse your gospel freedom. I want you to notice the first part of verse 13. And we're not going to spend near as much time in this as we did when we went through it the first time. But notice verse 13, Paul declares that believers are called to freedom. He says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. And our Christian life did not begin with our decision to follow Christ, but with God's call to us. Before we ever called out to God, he called us. He took the initiative. When we were in sin and rebellion, dead in trespasses and sin, God in grace came to us, called us to salvation, opened our hearts to receive the gospel. We responded to that in faith. He gave, the faith he gave us, we called out to him, and he saved us. I mean, what a great and glorious blessing this is. But God did even more than that. Paul says you were called to freedom. That is, you were called for a purpose. You were called to be free. Well, what is it that Christ has set us free from? Well, he set us free from the power of sin, from the penalty of sin. He has set us free from the dominion of Satan. All of that is included in our gospel freedom. But in the book of Galatians, the context here, uh, the primary freedom to which Paul refers is freedom from the law as a system and a way of life for Christians. We have been set free from the law of sin and death because the gospel has given us new life in Jesus Christ. 
Christ has set us free from the law with all of its demands and threats. We are called to freedom because we are called into the grace of Christ, and grace and freedom go together. Now, does this mean the law has ceased to have value and that that Christians have no relationship at all to the law? Well, of course not. The law is holy, just, and good, Paul said in Romans chapter 7. The law is God's perfectly holy standard. It teaches us about God's character and about God's ways and what he expects from us. It shows us the sinfulness of man. I mean, the Ten Commandments still represent a fundamental revelation of the holiness of the God which the Christian man and woman should exhibit in their lives. And so the law does apply to us indirectly, but not directly. In other words, not as the code of our life, not as a set of rules that direct and regulate our lives and behavior. We are not under the law as our guardian. We have been freed from that, Paul tells us. The law as a system has been set aside as a rule of life in the age of grace for Christians. We are not under the law, but under grace, Romans 6.14. The law of Moses was the law of the old covenant. We are under the new covenant, the covenant of grace. Now, does this mean that the Christian is lawless? Does this mean that we have no moral or spiritual principles to guide us? Well, no, not at all. We now live under the law of Christ, Galatians 6.2. And what is the law of Christ? It's the law of love, which is the law of the new covenant. What, what, what is this law of Christ? What is the law of Christ? Well, the law of Christ is not a detailed list of rules that regulate every aspect of our life, from our diet to our clothing to the calendar as the Mosaic law. Rather, it is a set of principles taken from the teachings of our Lord and the apostles found in the New Testament. And in fact, as we study the New Testament and the law of Christ, it is very clear that nine of the Ten Commandments have been taken up into the law of Christ. The fourth commandment. The Sabbath law is the sole exception. While the other nine commandments are expressions of God's holy nature, the Sabbath was a covenantal expression between God and the nation Israel. The other nine are what we could call eternal and universal expressions of God's holy nature. And so they have been repeated in the law of Christ, which is the law of love that fulfills all the rest of the law of God. And so Christian freedom is freedom from the law. We we have been delivered by grace from the bondage of the law as a system and a way of life. That, That yoke of slavery has been taken off of us. We've been freed from it. We now rest in the free grace of God. And we are under the law of Christ, the the law of love. We live a life of freedom under the internal guidance, direction, and restraint of the Holy Spirit, who enables us to live a life of obedience to God out of love implanted in our hearts by the Spirit. As Paul said, for the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's works of renewing and convicting of sin are far greater deterrents than the external law when it comes to the restraining of sin. And so we are freed from the law for obedience to God out of love. Not law, but love. Not rules and regulations, love. But when Paul speaks of being free from the law, 
Well, some immediately think he means that people are now free to determine their own standards of behavior, free to do whatever they want, free from any requirements and responsibilities. But nothing could be further from the truth. Because as Paul makes clear, grace, the freedom we have in Christ, is freedom from sin. It is not freedom to sin. It is freedom to walk in obedience out of love not freedom to walk in disobedience. The gospel does not free us to sin in any way. And the ultimate call of our freedom is holiness and love. We are free from the law, but not from the command to be like Christ, to be holy as he is holy. So our freedom is not for unbridled individualism, unrestrained independence, and unrestricted self-indulgence. Our gospel freedom uh, is not a means for satisfying the desires of the flesh, but rather for opposing them. And that's the issue that Paul now addresses in the next part of verse 13. Paul has affirmed that the Galatians had been set free from the law, and now in his next statement he refutes the Judaizers, the legalist accusations, that without the law people are going to become lawless. He now tells the Galatians their Christian freedom is not a freedom to indulge the flesh. Look back at verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. And then notice, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And the word flesh is a word that Paul often uses in his writings. It means something more than simply the body. It's another word for the fallen sinful nature which we inherited from Adam. And of course, the body is part of that fallen condition, but only a part. The flesh refers to the unspiritual life of the whole person, which is inclined to sin and driven by self-centeredness. It's the part of me that, that doesn't want what God wants. You know, my corrupt human nature and all of its pride and and weakness and depravity, whose supreme desire is to do its own will and to satisfy its own sinful appetites. You know, it's a synonym for sinful self-will. As believers, we are new creatures in Christ. We have a new heart with a new disposition with a new capacity to understand the truth. But even so, there is still within our members, or within our body, as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 7, a law of sin, or a a principle of sin. And it's active within us. And so Paul tells the Galatians, don't let your freedom become an opportunity for the flesh, for your sinful self-will driven by self-centeredness. And that is the root cause of all the problems in our families, marriages, personal relationships, and in the church. Sinful self-will driven by self-centeredness. But Paul says, don't let your freedom become an opportunity for the flesh. And the New International Version has it, do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. And the Greek word translated opportunity means a starting point. It was used in a military context for a base of operations, 
a place from which to launch an attack. And the idea is that we must not allow sin to use our freedom in Christ as a base to launch a spiritual attack against us. In other words, the fact that we are free from the law must not become an excuse for satisfying our sinful desires. I mean, sin enslaves us, remember? It leads us into darkness and shame and death. It's insatiable. You know, always wanting something more. Sin takes us down destructive paths that wind farther and farther and farther away from the truth and a Christ-like life. Sin enslaves us. And that is why Jesus said to the Jews, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And Paul described us in our pre-conversion state as slaves to various passions and pleasures. You see, loved ones, when we abuse our freedom, we actually lose our freedom. By turning freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, we become not more free, but rather more enslaved to our own selfish passions, pleasures, and desires. And let's not forget that that there are sins of commission, you know, sinful acts we commit, and these are the sins that, that people most often think of. But they completely forget about sins of omission. But there are also sins of omission, not doing the things that God in Christ has commanded us to do as a result of his grace in our lives. So we also abuse our freedom in Christ when we give in to our selfish passions and desires by neglecting the things of God and by not doing the things that we're called to do. And so how ironic that Christian freedom would be used to return to slavery to sin. Because living to fulfill your desires, whether it's the desire to commit a sinful act or whether it's the desire to not do what we're supposed to do, that is to be enslaved to those desires. But you see, it is from sin, represented by the flesh, that the gospel saves believers. And so whatever Christian freedom is, It is certainly not the right of believers to return to the sin that Christ saved them from by giving his very life. Loved ones, the freedom we have in Christ is not meant to be the base of operations or or the springboard and, and pretext for indulging whatever our sinful nature desires. I mean, Paul says down in Galatians 5.24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Paul instructed the believers in Rome to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and to make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Paul wrote to Titus in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. For by the grace, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 
Freedom from the law and its demands does not do away with our obligation to live godly lives. Rather, those who have been justified by faith are now free to do what Christ wants. Free to, do, free to live godly lives. We are, are free to love and, and free to serve. And if you know God's love for you in Christ, and if you have experienced His saving, forgiving grace, why in the world would you use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature which before you were saved left you an enemy of God, unforgiven and unfulfilled? Anyone who insists that the grace of God, that the freedom of the gospel allows us to sin, has simply not understood it, nor felt its power, or perhaps never experienced God's saving grace to begin with. One commentator wrote, Although a true believer may fall into serious sin, his renewed conscience in Christ's own indwelling spirit will not allow him to enjoy it for long. And he surely will not continually try to justify sin as a legitimate expression of Christian freedom. The new nature hates sin and loves the righteousness of God. And so Paul warns the Galatians not to abuse their gospel freedom. You know, not, not to allow this, this great blessing of freedom to become a pretext and an excuse for self-indulgence and sin. But when some people hear that, when they hear that we're freed from the law, that we're no longer under law but under grace, they hope it means that they can sin as much as they please. Even some people who consider themselves Christians have this attitude. They think, well, you know, if God has already forgiven me and accepted me in Christ, I'm, I'm under grace, well, I'm free to do or, or not do whatever I want. I'm saved by grace. So God will be ready to forgive me if I sin, so, so why not? Well, Paul dealt with this, this very same issue in Rome and Corinth. And after describing the great abundance of grace that has been shown to us in Christ, he asked the question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, since God has given me abundant grace because of the sin which abounded in my life, can't I do more sinning and in that way receive more grace? You know, won't my indulgence in sin simply open the floodgates of grace to pour out grace in even greater measure? And Paul's answer, by no means. Or like the old King James translation of that one, God forbid and how can, he said, how can we who died to sin still live in it? You see, the mind under the influence of the flesh is very skilled in rationalizing sin. I'm under grace. I mean, who cares how much I sin by committing sinful acts or by omitting other acts? Who cares? God does. The Lord Jesus Christ does. 
Jesus does not give freedom to believers so that we can turn around and use that freedom to do what we want or not do what we should, but rather so that we can, for the very first time, do what God wants out of love and gratitude for him and all that he has done and continues to do. That's the danger we face. Turning freedom into license is an evil ingrained in our sinful human nature. I mean, the sin that's within us is like a a living creature that's just scheming and, and conniving. And when we fall prey to that influence of the flesh, we rationalize. I mean, we're, we're masters at justifying our actions. And that's why Augustine used to pray, Lord, deliver me from that evil man, myself. I mean, it's very easy to turn privilege and blessing into opportunities for sin. But Paul said, don't do it. Don't be fooled. Don't turn your freedom into license. Instead, look back at verse 13. Paul said, through love, serve one another. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, Paul said that in Christ, circumcision and non-circumcision are of no value. Because he said the only thing that counts is faith working or expressing itself through love. In other words, the faith which saves is a faith that is alive. A faith which works, a faith which bears fruit, a faith which expresses itself in works of love toward God and others. It's the kind of faith that trusts so fully in God's grace that the result is a life of love. And love is an essential part of the Christian life. I mean, it's not optional. It's not optional whether we love one another. I mean, no one can say, I am saved by grace through faith, regardless of whether I love people or not. Because the only faith which saves is faith working through love, Galatians 5, 6. Saving faith always gives rise to love, and love gives evidence of genuine faith. And here in verse 13, Paul presses it home with the command, through love, serve one another. You see, our Christian freedom is not for self-centeredness and selfish fulfillment, but rather so that through love we may serve one another. Love is both the motivation for serving others and it is the manner in which we are to serve them. There is a new love which the believer has within him, the love of Christ. And this fruit of the Spirit flows outward from what God has done in each believer's heart and overflows in relationship to others. And the Greek word that Paul uses here for love is agape, which, as you know, is the highest form of love. It's the love that God is. It is a selfless, self-giving, sacrificial love. It is a love that seeks the highest good of the object loved, regardless of the cost. It is a love that, that acts. It's a love that manifests itself in selfless, humble service to meet someone else's needs, no matter how low the service, no matter how unworthy and undeserving the person, no matter how difficult and inconvenient it may be. This love is so much an absolute of the Christian life that Jesus said to his disciples, 
A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And by this, he said, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It is this love that separates Jesus' own from the world. I mean, this is what makes us different. This, Jesus said, is is how people will know that you're my disciples if you have love, this kind of love for one another. One commentator wrote, The kind of love Paul has in mind is the selfless love that comes from falling in love with Jesus Christ. It is the kind of love that enables me to love my neighbor as spontaneously and as instinctively as I love myself. To love in this way is to enjoy real liberty. As long as I serve myself, I am a slave to self. But when the Spirit enables me to offer loving service to others, then I am free. The person who is the most free is the one empowered by the Holy Spirit to love and to serve others. You see, Christian freedom doesn't leave believers wandering through life without laws, rules, restraints, or or guidelines. Instead, they freely live according to God's standards and glorify Him through loving, sacrificial service to one another. Through love, Paul said, We are to serve one another. The word serve here is actually the word slave. It means to slave. To serve as if a slave in a humble manner. It it could be translated, be slaving for. And it's in the present tense indicating this is to be an ongoing lifestyle of service. It speaks of the continual serving of others just as a slave must carry out his responsibilities to his master. One man wrote, The purpose of Christian freedom is for believers to do exactly as the Hebrew slave did who permanently surrendered his freedom to the master he loved. They willingly give up the freedom to serve themselves, which is freedom to serve the sinful flesh, in order to become slaves of God. Having been freed from sin, they willingly begin the joyous privilege of becoming enslaved to God. You see, the New Testament concept of service means performing lowly, thankless deeds as a slave would. And this is what Jesus modeled, isn't it, when he washed his disciples' feet. You know, our gifts are less important than our readiness to serve. And that's what love does. That's how love is seen. It desires to serve. And we're to do that. I mean, this is not an option. I mean, Paul isn't giving us a suggestion here that we might want to consider. Now, this is not an option. This is the sign that we are Christ's disciples, that we love one another. So Paul has said, don't be a slave to the law. But now he says, you're free in Christ, not as an opportunity for your flesh, but to live selflessly, for your, not for yourselves, but to be a slave. You're not to live selflessly or selfishly for yourselves. Rather, you're to be a slave. Christ saved us. He freed us. 
so that we could be so committed to serving him by serving one another that it looks like slavery. You're thinking, well, that doesn't sound very freeing to me. Because you see, most of us would rather be the master having a slave wait on us. We'd like to give the orders. We'd like our needs and wants to be the center of attention. But is that really freedom? Aren't we really bound in that situation by the smallness of our own self-interests? Serving out of love, on the other hand, takes us beyond ourselves. As one man said, it brings us into the fullness of the Father's purpose for our lives. Think of that, the fullness of the Father's purpose for our lives. I mean, the Father has a purpose for our lives. We've been bought for a price, we're no longer our own, and so We're no longer live for ourselves, but rather we're to live for him who died for us and and he has a purpose for us and, and that purpose is that we serve out of love. And we're servants. Slaves. Not volunteers. And this distinction must be pointed out. Because a servant has an unwavering commitment to his master, the Lord Jesus Christ, and serves him faithfully out of love for him and his church. Whereas a volunteer is also someone who serves, but generally speaking, they do so only at their convenience. And it's not required of a volunteer to be motivated by love. Believers serve out of love. We're motivated by our love for Christ and for one another. And we are so in love with Christ, so thankful for what he has done, that we gladly give our lives in humble service to him. By setting us free to serve, the Holy Spirit enslaves us to Christ and to one another in love. And of course, this shouldn't surprise us because it's the paradox of the life and death of our Lord, isn't it? I mean, though he is Lord of all, he became the servant of sinners. As Paul explained to the Philippians, although Christ was in very nature God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing by taking the form of a servant. And that word servant is the same word that we find here in Galatians, which means slave. Jesus made himself a slave for us by suffering and dying for our sins on the cross. And now we are called to the same kind of uh, enslavement, the same kind of loving enslavement. Martin Luther explained the paradox this way. A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, Subject to all. I mean, Luther meant that the freedom we have in Christ obligates us to serve one another in love. And in this, in this liberty, Luther went on to say, 
The Christian must empty himself, take upon himself the form of a servant, serve, help, and in every way deal with his neighbor as God through Christ has dealt with him. Our freedom in Christ is not self-seeking, self-indulgent, but rather self-sacrificing, humble service. And you know the amazing thing is that this kind of, of slavery really is freedom. Now that Christ has freed us from sin and death, we're no longer enslaved by selfish desires. Instead, we, we have been freed to serve one another with his love. And so the call to freedom then is a call to oneness in Christ and, and to loving service within the, the believing community of the local church. And the Galatians, and, and no one for that matter, is saved to be a, 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 you know, a, an isolated individual. And neither are we. We are brought out of bondage to live in community. And a lot of Christians today, uh, they follow the American way of life more than they do the Word of God. Americans love individuality and, and autonomy and, and even anonymity in, in church. But Christianity is about living in community within a local church. I mean, look at this verse. Christ saved you, set you free, so that you could be so committed to others that it looks like slavery. And you should never presume that, that you are growing spiritually when you are not in community within a local church. And being in community is not merely showing up on Sundays, which seems to be harder and harder uh, for people to do these days. And of course, that's one of the curses of our affluence. People can, and so they do. God has blessed them, and so they abuse the blessing. But being in community is not merely showing up on Sundays. It's being involved in the life of the church. It's loving and serving one another. Remember the, the series we did on the one another's? And being in community, first of all, involves being here. And then beyond just being here, being involved. And then actually practicing those one another's. You know, as one man said, don't be a Christian ninja covertly sliding in and out of worship services. The Lord saved us so that we could love and serve one another. The call to freedom also means that we're free from using people. We're free from seeking approval from people. We're free from self-promotion. Instead, we're to live out the overflow of a heart that has been set free by Christ and to serve others lovingly. You and I were slaves to sin. But now we are free in Jesus Christ. And so we're to take on a new form of slavery, that, that of lovingly serving others. It's a slavery of freedom through Christ.
It's giving yourself to others for the sake of Christ. It's meeting the needs of others because Christ has met you at the most important point of need in your life. That's how our freedom is to be used. Not to sin, but to love and serve. And so after telling the Galatians that they are free from the law, and after warning them not to become slaves to it again, he now tells them to become slaves to one another. And there, there's some irony in that. But that's what Christian freedom is. It's freedom to serve. It's freedom to be a blessing to others. And again, that's real freedom. Because it's freedom from selfishness. It is freedom from the tyranny of the ego. It is freedom from that rule that we all naturally live by, which is to look out for number one. True Christian freedom is not to sin, but to serve. It's not license to indulge our sinful nature, but freedom to serve one another in selfless, sacrificial love. And when we do, Paul says, we fulfill the law. Look at verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. For the whole law, the whole law, he says. The whole law, God's standard of conduct, Paul says, it's fulfilled in one word. And that word is love. You see, the ethics of the Old Testament law are the same as those of the New Testament gospel, as indicated by the quote Paul uses here from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. God has always called his people to serve and obey him because they love him. I mean, Jesus said, didn't he? If you love me, you will what? What? That's what I thought you said. Paul's saying that when a Christian genuinely loves others, he fulfills all the moral requirements of the law concerning them. So love, not law, is the ruling principle of Christian freedom. And love, as Paul explains later in this chapter, is the fruit of the Spirit. It's not something we can produce in our own strength. No, no, the Holy Spirit produces it in us. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And you know, Paul echoed and expanded on that truth in Romans chapter 13, where he writes this in verses 8 through 10. Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And it's extremely important for all of us here this morning to understand that when Paul says or when Jesus says, when Paul says, love your neighbor as yourself, that absolutely is not a command to love yourself. We, we snicker, but uh, there are a lot of people in churches that believe that because they've been taught that. That absolutely is not a command in any way, shape, or form to love yourself. Paul and Moses and Jesus 
assume that all people love themselves, and we all love ourselves way too much, and that's the problem. And so they're not commanding that here. The sense of this verse is, you shall love your neighbor as you already love yourself. This is a command to take your natural, already existing love of self and then make it the measuring rod of your love for others. And there's not a harder command in the Bible than this one. And you know what it means? It means that we're to use all the creativity and energy and resources and perseverance to do good things for others that that you use in, in doing good things for yourself. It means care about what happens to others as much as you care about what happens to yourself. Now, can we even imagine what the church would be like if we were all like that? You know, looking at all of those around us this morning and then feeling the same longing for their happiness that we feel for our own. I mean, not only would the law be fulfilled, this place would be filled with great joy and the glory of God would be unmistakably present in our midst and believers, uh, uh, unbelievers would be saved. And let's be like that. Let's be like that in, in the power of the Spirit, because we can't do it on our own. And so the principle here is clear. We're, we're free to love one another by serving one another, and we're to do that. It's not an option. And we serve others because we want to, not because we have to. It's, it's an obligation that's true, but it's an obligation that we desire to take on because God's love has filled our heart, and this is what love does. This is how love is seen. God so loved the world that he, what? Gave. And this love is the sign that we're Christ's disciples. And so we must do it. Which means we, we must make an effort to know the body we're a part of and serve it. And as Paul emphasizes in the remainder of the chapter, the Christian has the indwelling Holy Spirit not only to motivate his service to God and others, but to empower it as well. So the Galatians were to serve one another in love precisely because love is the true meaning and fulfillment of the law in this new covenant era of grace. And then in verse 15, Paul warns about what happens when believers neglect to use their freedom to love and to serve one another. Look at verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. The attitude... uh, toward one another that's described and condemned in this verse is the very opposite of loving and serving one another. The imagery here is of wild animals savagely attacking and killing each other. And it's a graphic picture of what happens in the spiritual realm when believers do not love and serve one another. You see, not only is license, you know, abusing grace and the freedom we have in Christ, self-enslaving, 
It is also self-destroying. One of the things that happens when people think that their freedom in Christ means they have every right to do what they want and, and they use their freedom to indulge the flesh and fulfill their own desires is lovelessness. Lovelessness. It's the lovelessness of sin, the, the lovelessness of selfishness, the lovelessness of indifference, and it literally causes conflict everywhere. It is the the lack of love and the presence of self-centered egotism that leads to demanding our own way, arguing over minor issues, and dividing the body of Christ. I mean, it's just the exact opposite of serving one another in love, and it is evidence that people are not walking in the Spirit, but are instead using their freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, and as a result, they're behaving like a bunch of wild animals. And this in itself is proof that law cannot force people to get along with each other. No matter how many rules and regulations the church may adopt, they are no guarantee of spirituality. Because they cannot change a person's heart and mind and cause the person to love others. That is only a work of the Spirit. That's only something the Spirit can do in an individual's heart. And so unless the Holy Spirit of God fills hearts with His love, selfishness and strife and competition will reign. And a church of people who do not love and serve one another will absolutely destroy itself. And tragically, many a local church has ceased to be effective for God because Christian freedom has been abused and selfish license prevails rather than love for one another. But on the other hand, and the good news, is that where there is genuine love and where there is sacrificial service, this kind of conflict disappears. Because love does no harm to its neighbor. Well, how in the world is it possible for us to live like this? Well, we've already said it, but we'll say it again. As Paul says in verse 16, I say, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, the lusts of the flesh. And so as believers in Jesus Christ, we're free. We are free. We are free not to sin, but to love one another. And if we love one another, we will serve one another. And if we serve one another, we will not bite and devour and consume one another. Now, speaking of himself, Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came the first time as a servant. Sacrificial serving, the serving of others, is what characterized his earthly life and ministry. And just before he spoke those words, in the two verses prior, Jesus 
said this to his bickering disciples. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. You see, they were to follow Jesus' example of humble service, of humble servanthood. And so are we. But following our Lord's example of servanthood is difficult. Because serving is often hard work and it takes time. Serving is not convenient. And there are always more entertaining, more pleasurable things to do. And for no other reason, serving is difficult because it means serving people. And sometimes people, people can be difficult to get along with. Following Jesus' example of servanthood means being a willing and faithful servant in the hard place, the lonely place, the demanding place, the obscure place. It's being willing to serve in the place where you're unappreciated, where people are inconsiderate and ungrateful. And when we're serving Christ, we need to do so for his glory. Serving as unto the Lord, whether or not our service is even noticed or we are ever thanked. And although serving is often hard, unappreciated work, there is no work that is so rewarding. Because all that we do in Jesus' name and for his glory will endure for all of eternity. Jesus will one day reward us for our faithful service. And not only will he reward us, think about this. In Luke 12, 37, Jesus said this, Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. The context of that verse is the second coming of the Lord. And our Lord Jesus says that when he returns, he's going to take the servant's role and minister as a servant to believers. He's going to minister to his faithful servants. One commentator wrote, What is promised here, therefore, is that our Lord at his second coming will, in a manner consonant with his glory and majesty, Wait on his faithful servant. And so obviously the servant character of Jesus did not only exist during his time as a suffering servant on earth. At his second coming, he's going to minister as a servant to us. The infinitely greater is going to serve the lesser ones. Because you see, servanthood is part of the eternal character of God. And so the more we grow in Christ's likeness, the more we become like him, the greater our service for him will be. Lord, help us all to be faithful servants. Help us, Lord, be, be faithful servants through loving and, and serving you by serving one another and all of this for his eternal glory.
You know, our prayer should be, there's an old song, and it should be our prayer. Make me like you, Lord. Make me like you. You are a servant. Make me one too. Amen? You know, may we take these things and, and consider them and how they might apply to our own hearts and lives. You know, may we, may we examine our, the freedom that we have in Christ and ask the Lord, am I abusing my freedom? Am I abusing my gospel freedom? Am I using it as an excuse to sin? And then we should examine our service. And what's the motivation for my service? Am I serving out of love for Christ and love for his people? You know, what, what, what motivates me to serve? I mean, these are things that we should ask ourselves, things that we should consider. Because those who love him will serve him. Right? And there's nothing so low, nothing um, so costly, so difficult uh, that we shouldn't be willing to do for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand and pray. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us at 530-547-4400. Again, 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website at calvarybiblepc.org. calvarybiblepc.org. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. It's your love that makes me see It's your word that comforts me By your blood we've been set